This is John Scott Tynes uh, reporting live from Puppet Lands, where mayhem is underway and the Carpe GM Gamecast is in full effect. In an effort to support the talented and creative individuals in our community, we give you the Carpe GM interview series. Discussions about gaming and geek pop culture with those who help to create it. Joining us today, revolutionary game designer John Scott Tynes. Prepare to be inspired. Thank you for joining us. This is the Carpe GM Gamecast interview series, and I'm sitting here live, kind of, on the phone with John Scott Tynes. John, say hello. Hey there. Hello. <laughs> All right. Uh, lots of people are going to know you from projects other than what we're talking about today, I think. Um, totally. They're going to know you from um, more more recently Delta Green and Unknown Armies and whatnot, but before all of that, you did a little project called Puppet Land. When I'm when I'm trying to describe Puppet Land for me, uh, a friend showed up. It started out as just a little uh, web article, and a friend of mine printed it up. It was just a few thousand words. A friend of mine printed it up and brought it to our game group. It changed the way I look at RPGs. Uh, before that, it was second edition Dungeons and Dragons and more crunchy fight the goblins, paint the walls of the dungeon with their blood, much more mechanics based totally. games. And Puppet Land changed all of that for me. It changed the way that I looked at RPGs as a whole and how I played, even if I were playing those more crunchy mechanics based games. And I, I got to tell you, thank you so much for what you did. It was. Um, Probably what was it, nineteen ninety six or so? I think I was probably sixteen. Does that sound right? Yeah, Puppetland. Uh, I first published it on my website in nineteen ninety five. Okay. Um, which I mean, like, was within the first year or two that the web was around. Right, it was right. you know kind of kind of the, kind of the wild west in those days. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. I'm glad that it had. Uh, I'm glad that it had an impact. I've since got a family. And for quite some time, my gaming group consisted of my children. So that method of play has has found its way into a whole new generation of gamers. So whether they realize it or not, they thank you as well, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, actually, there was a, um, uh, there was a grad student uh, quite a few years ago now at Rutgers who was, uh, who was uh, studying education. Um, and he used uh puppet land uh in his um uh like more or less like uh creative writing you know english skills uh class with kids with like you know middle schoolers sure and so they would they would play puppet land together they'd write stories about their puppets like they'd use that as the basis for their compositions um and he used and he, he did a whole article like a an academic article about how to use puppet land for educational purposes which was the last thing on my mind when i created it but it's been uh, it is it is weirdly accessible despite it's uh how you know grotesque and disturbing it all is yeah I, I was thinking along the same lines but um because of the visceral horror and whatnot that that kind of makes puppet land the rpg for me i would love to read this article can do you happen to know uh the name of the article or 
the Grudge stuff? Um, you know, it, I can dig it up for you for sure. sure um, it was published in a uh, in a book by uh, MIT Press um, called uh, it's called Second Person, and it was a it was a whole academic book about um, uh, storytelling and interactivity and video games and so forth. Neat. Um, and he had it. Uh, it was published in there as an essay, which was which was great. It was a really cool book, really fun. Okay. I w- but yeah, I, I can dig it up for you afterwards. Definitely want to check that out. If you send me a link uh, to uh, where you can purchase it, or if it's uh, published online anywhere, I will yeah. definitely put it in the show notes. Uh, anyone who's yeah, listened to my show for any amount of time knows that I am bouncing off the walls excited about gaming and education. I love <laughs> the concept, love the idea. I do anything I can to support any of that. Uh, as a matter of fact, my first interview that I ever did as the host of this podcast was uh, with a company in Colorado that does LARPing for educational purposes. And I just, oh, that's great. They have like a LARP camp that, you know, you get a couple, couple mm-hmm. weeks out there. It's just really neat idea. Yeah. So what is Puppet Land? Um, when I am trying, I, I saw that you had the second edition that came out and actually got my hands on a copy. Uh, you, you folks uh, were kind enough to send me a review copy and I'm trying to explain to people uh, what it is. And the best way I can kind yeah. of explain it is like, first I have to draw the line of, okay, you know, the like the land of make-believe in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And so they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. And then I said, okay, imagine that, like, cosmic and visceral horror with a little sprinkling of of mania and some resultant crisis of existentialism kind of settles onto the land of make-believe. And they they look at me with the craziest faces. I, I really think I should just make a web series out of telling people what Puppet Land is and just see their face because it's such a staggering surprise whenever whenever I actually get through to them that this is yeah I, I I totally see reaction videos for this <laughs> it would be fantastic uh, so so tell me about Puppetland what 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 prompted it yeah um, well you know uh, I mean I I've been at the time at the time I created Puppetland uh, circa nineteen ninety four ninety five. Um, I'd been a game designer for a few years. I'd, I founded uh, Pagan Publishing back in 1990. I was doing uh, Call of Cthulhu projects, The Unspeakable Oath, and other uh, other Cthulhu goodness. Um, but uh, but when I was a kid, uh, quite a young kid, um, I think I was probably about eight or nine years old, um, I had a copy of this book from the library that was all about making puppets, like finger puppets and so forth. Yeah. And I got really obsessed with this book. And uh, one of the chapters in the book, they, they covered all kinds of projects, like like a craft book, you know. Um, but one of the chapters was about Punch and Judy, uh, which are these um, very traditional puppets in England. Uh, and they come from like France and Italy, even in kind of earlier incarnations before that, going back hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a very old storytelling tradition in Europe. Um, right. And in England, the Punch and Judy shows are these you know, things that like every, like for, uh, for hundreds of years, like kids in England grew up going to punch and Judy shows at like birthday parties, seaside resorts and summer vacation, this kind of thing. It was a very traditional kind of English kid activity. And, and because they've come down from, you know, more for, from, you know, like the middle ages probably to the Renaissance, right. um, they're really pretty, they're, they're pretty ghastly, you know, oh their punches, yes. this, yeah, punches this like horribly abusive guy who's, beating his wife with a stick and throwing their baby out the window. Um, and he more or less just kind of like, like kills or tricks or traps or throws over every puppet he meets. Um, and traditionally like, like he gets arrested by the police for killing his own baby. And so then he has to, 
go to the hangman, he get hanged, but then he tricks the hangman and hangs the hangman instead, so he kills him, and then he goes to hell, and there's the devil, and like it's just this sort of endless thing. And uh, Punch and Judy's story is is very much kind of like a fixed story. It's always told the same way every time, and has been for hundreds of years. Right. Every puppeteer has their own, you know, style and, and dialogue and so forth. But the, but the, the narrative is is pretty much the same. Uh, it's all about this outrageous scoundrel and all the kids, you know, ooh and ah and yell, and then, and then Punch will yell at the kids. Very interactive. I will, um, uh, and so it's just been this this weird, this freaky thing. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, when I was a kid watching, you know, a bunch of VSI, VHS videos and whatnot, uh, I had this, uh, I don't remember, just generic Christmas video. And on it was a Punch and Judy show. And it was Punch and Judy and Santa Claus. And <laughs> I thought it was the most hilarious thing I'd ever seen when I was like six. And uh, it right. was just this random thing. So I, I looked into a little bit. You know, I saw it, it's not like we have the Internet where now you can hop on YouTube. But there were there were videos yeah. floating around. And Punch is the, like the, the, the gag in this thing is like Santa Claus presents a Punch and Judy show to the kids. And it starts off with him like harassing his wife to get a kiss and like holding her down and beating her head on the on the on the stage floor and smacking her around. And she's like, no, I don't want to. It's just, it's so terrible. It's so terrible to, <laughs> to think about yeah. the actual real world ramifications. And then he's like beating a cat with a board and the, the, the cat takes the board from him and is beating him with it. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes and I could see the appeal. It was a lot of fun when I was eight. Yeah. I look at it now and I'm like, yeah, no it's... way my kids will ever watch Punch and Judy stuff. My goodness. <laughs> Yeah, it's very, you know, kind of knock around slapstick sort of yeah. stuff, uh, kind of, you know, proto three studios almost. But um, and, and, you know, if you grew up with it and that's just the deal and, yep. you know, Punch yep. is kind of this classic character. Um, but, you know, coming from the outside, from, you know, living in America, you know, I read this chapter. I never heard of these, these characters before as a right. kid. Uh, and, and, and it just sounded fascinating to me. And they kind of summarized the, the story a little bit. So my mom, I, I, I browbeat her into uh, making me finger puppets of Punch and Judy because that's what was they had, they had patterns for them in, in this craft book. Right. And so pretty soon I had I had Punch and Judy finger puppets, and then we made we made um, alligators, we made a police officer, um, and a couple other characters. And so, but all all I knew was this one chapter, and so I just began making my own stories. And so I would write scripts, like puppet show scripts, um, for my Punch and Judy characters. And I was pretty vague on the concept. So my Punch and Judy stories were much more kind of like surreal adventures, like Punch is flying in a biplane and crashes in a swamp and meets an alligator and they get attacked by sentient Christmas presents. <laughs> and just, you know, kind of just like weird lunatic kid stuff, you know. Right. So for quite a while, like a year or so, I would have this little basket full of puppets and scripts that I would just carry with me. Like if I had to sit in the back of the church while my mom was doing something or whatever, I would just, you know, be busy with my puppets, kind of playing with them. And that, you know, lasted for a year or so. And then I kind of moved on. But Punch and Judy kind of always stayed with me. And as I got older and I learned, you know, I, I learned uh, eventually about the more about the traditions uh, and, and kind of the history of the characters and so forth. And also just kind of retained an interest always in puppetry. And uh, by the time I was, you know, starting Pagan, um, I was really still really thought puppets were freaky and, and disturbing and so forth. And, and they always kind of bothered me. Um, but I also was like drawn to them at the same time, you know. Um, and so I just was kind of thinking about 
Punch and Judy and this this freaky world. And I'd seen some movies that kind of had touched on puppet related stuff. Um, there was a a great uh, movie called Faust that was based on the Faust legend, of course, um, yeah. by a uh, filmmaker named Jan Svankmeyer. And it's a it's a creepy movie. It's really it's this sort of black magic you know story. And some of the characters are puppets. Some of them are humans. It's a, it's a really weird movie. Um, it's really freaky. And I just, I love the, the feel of it. It's this very Eastern European kind of Cold War era um, uh, black magic story. And, and that kind of got me, got me going and thinking about uh, puppets again. And then there was a store, like a, like a folk art shop uh, in Seattle that I went to sometimes. And they had this upstairs area with a whole room full of these uh, like uh, Balinese and Indonesian puppets. So they they had marionettes, they had shadow puppets, they had all these kind of, you know, these things I'd never seen before. I had no exposure to that, those cultures to speak of. I feel like you stumbled on one of the scariest places in this country. (laughs) (laughs) It would, I mean, it was, it was freaky. It was was actually, it was an alcove in the upstairs of the shop and it was covered in glass. There's a glass panel over it. And you just kind of press your face up against it and there'd be all these puppets staring back at you. And it was, you know, really freaky, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so all these things were just kind of in my head together. And I began imagining this world of uh, puppet land of these, this kind of world where, you know, puppets have come to life and the landscape is all like a, like a model railroad table. You know, it's all covered in like fake trees and fake grass and little buildings and things. And there's puppets up there. And, um, and that, that the whole, the story kind of spun out of that at the time to me, this was really much more of a story than a game. I was just kind of interested in this concept and the characters and exploring it. But as a game designer, I just thought, well, you know, I'll just I'll make it into a game. Like that's what I do. And so, um, but my, my, my first, in, my first interest was really in the, in the world. And so, you know, like designing a whole game system with, you know, stats and skills and so forth just seems like kind of a waste of time. Like it was just this crazy puppet thing. It, it seemed like it really weird to bolt it onto some giant RPG system. Right. Um, and so I just, I just kind of wrote some stuff up that I thought like, really like this is, this should be a very simple experience. Um, just get together and tell some stories and have fun with it. And so the main thing I came up with was just the idea that the game has to last one hour and has to stop at that point. And I came up with that mostly because I thought like, oh, look, what could go wrong in one hour? <laughs> like for one hour, right. you can buy a good time for the thing. And, and it worked. Like it was, it was really fun and people loved it. And so I put it up on my website just kind of just to, just to throw it out there. Um, and then uh, it just kind of grew. Um, and a year or two later, it was um, picked up by a UK uh, games magazine that uh, was going around then called Arcane. And they published it with some beautiful artwork. Um, and then that led to it getting printed by Hogshead in the UK uh, in its first standalone edition. Um, and that was, and, and then it, it sort of, it kind of went out of print a few years later and that was kind of it. And it was, it was gone from, you know, like 2002 until, uh, until now, basically it was gone for about 15 years almost. Right. Um, so I really, I was excited to finally get a chance to bring it back and kind of, you know, revise it, expand it, kind of flush it out. Um, and also be able to bring in a bunch of great collaborators, uh, to write scenarios for it. And so we ended up with this with a Kickstarter and then this massive, you know, 160 page book that has finally brought uh public land to the rampaging life that deserved. Yes, sir. I agree. 100%. So let's talk about the game here just a little bit. Uh, basically you can, you, your players, you, there are three rules in the game, right? I mean, the, the three rules are not like anything you're going to see in any other games. Right. The first rule is an hour is gone. Yeah. 
but it's not an hour yep. specifically. <laughs> um, so the, the idea there is we have one hour to tell this tale in real time. If you if you're interested in this and you want to play this game, I highly recommend you buy yourself an hourglass. Uh, from experience playing this game, watching the sand fall into the bottom globe heightens the tension for the last ten minutes of the game to to, to with, with without comp, without comparison. It it is it is fantastic what that does to the people sitting around the table if they're bought in. So you have an hour to tell the tale, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the tale only takes place in an hour. It can take weeks or months or whatever uh, inside, rather than, uh, I think the example you gave was a puppet says, I sleep for two weeks. A puppet sleeps for two weeks. That right. only took about five seconds to say. And uh, right. so the hour is golden. And when everybody is bought in and you have a timer sitting on the, if you don't have an hourglass, get a timer, make sure there's some sort of a countdown. You need everyone at the table to know how long you've got left because all puppets are kind of uh, dialed into that. They know when the tale is, is drawing to an end. Right. Uh, anything else you'd like to expand on on that? Well, you know, uh, it's, it's a, it's a funny thing because, you know, I, RPGs work that way, right? I mean, you know, you can, you know, I, I, I played the masks Nyarlathotep campaign for Call of Cthulhu in college and, yeah. You know, and we played that for probably a year and a half of real time, you know, every week or so. But it consumed, you know, many hundreds of thousands of hours of our characters, like lived time. Right. Um, so we always have that kind of time compression going on. But what I wanted with Puppet Land with this in this case was just to ensure that, uh, you know, because, again, it kind of goes back to why the rules were so minimalist in the first place. I mean, the idea that you might – because when, when we would play Masks uh, in college playing Call of Cthulhu, you know, we would have game sessions that might go on for 16 hours. Like we would just be be together from like noon until like you know the next morning on these ah, marathon, you know, epic game sessions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 the idea of doing Puppet Land for that long just seemed you know ludicrous. You know, like it's uh, I just didn't think the concept would stand up to that kind of pressure um, because it's so it's already so kind of unusual and sort of stylized and, and whatnot. So I just thought it'd be a great experiment to try making a game that just that was just going to be one hour, and the fact that, that the characters kind of know it is is, a, is 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 really important as well because that lets them, you know, ramp up their intensity and in how they are pursuing their actions and how desperate they get and so forth. And it kind of comes out of the idea that you know they're they're characters that were created by a storyteller for a storytelling world, and so they have this kind of consciousness about the fact that stories are taking place that involve them. And they kind of understand what it means to be in a story, yeah. And that's that's kind of where that where that concept comes from. Peel back the layers just a little bit, and what you're actually doing as a player in Puppet Land is performing a a play or a tale or a puppet show for someone else. So you're playing characters who are playing characters in a play for someone other than you. That's right, and that that actually gets to one of the rules of Puppet Land. In fact. Absolutely, this brings us right into the second rule of uh, Puppet Land, which is what you say is what you say, because you're on stage performing this. What you say is what your character says. Now, this has kind of been—I I don't know—it's kind of been a point of contention for RPGs, particularly if you have um, uh, insecure GMs who can't who can't run tables and whatnot. Why did your character just talk about a cell phone? Or what? What are the Green Bay Packers like? What's going on here? It was kind of a, smack, <laughs> a ruler smack on people who who were who were not bought into the game. But in this case, it actually has an in-game function in that your characters are putting on a show for someone else. 
this also, before we get to the third rule, this is the charm of Puppet Land from a, a, a GM or Puppet Master's perspective. In that the Puppet Master, or GM for all intents and purposes, can't talk directly to the puppets. There, there has, there's a degree right. of separation. And the, the Puppet Master's direction is given in the form of story narration, as if he were a sentient third party just kind of watching the situation and telling the story to the uh, the, the non-existent viewers. Right. This can create challenges, yeah. but it's also just absolutely the fun of being the GM here is because you have to rely so much on your players around the table to be creative and reactive and to be able to spin that into a narration rather than just telling them you walk into a room. You have to paint the picture and then let them put in the details and then you get to comment on the details as if you were a narrator and kind of steer the story that way. Brilliant, yeah, it's a it's mechanic. a really <laughs> well. Thank you. Yeah, it it creates a really weird and and pretty fun uh, relationship uh, between the the players and the game master. You know, because in, in, a, in a written story, in a prose story, you know, you've got dialogue spoken by characters, and you have exposition that's like describing the room or or actions characters take or something. And in Puppet Land, um, we divide that among so the players do dialogue and the GM does exposition. Normally in a role-playing game, you know, like I, I might, I might speak in my character's voice if I'm having a conversation with the GM who's pretending to be an NPC or something, and I'm trying to persuade the NPC to give me, you know, a sword or whatever. But I also switch back and forth between doing kind of out-of-character talk, where just like, hey, pass the Doritos, and I'm going to roll a twenty, and right. let's let's see if we can draw a sketch for the battle map and so forth. Puppetland just like says, nope, don't do any of that. It's all going to be nothing but in-character dialogue from the players. And the GM does the description and also, of course, does NPCs. So if, a, if a, you know, the GM says something like, you know, well, you come into, you know, the puppets come into a room and there they discovered that, you know, Mr. Mr. Fuzzy was, he was tied to a chair by the evil nutcrackers. Then at that point, you're just kind of waiting and, a car- and one of the players has to speak up and say something like, oh, no, quick, let's cut the ropes on Mr. Fuzzy Wuzzy. And so then that's that's their action, effectively. And so the GM is going to respond with something like, you know, Molly Floppy Pants began to saw heavily at the ropes, but realized very quickly they were made of iron. How could she possibly cut these ropes? And and then that just, you know, so the, the players and the GM just keep kind of like escalating with each other, kind of throwing these challenges at each other's face to see what they come up with. And the improvisation you get out of that dynamic, um, it's just really fun. It's really, you have a great time with it. You can really kind of, you know, you can say things that might kind of screw with each other. It's just kind of fun, but you can also be supportive and find ways to to tell a really fun story together. Um, and it's a, it's a very different way of playing, and it's it's pretty intensive. Like it's not something that I think you could maintain for right. you know sixteen hours straight. But but for this kind of experience for one hour, like it's it can be a real blast. Perfect one hour one hour time limit is is great for that because all of a sudden nobody needs to eat the pizza because we're all zeroed in because everyone is active telling the story. Yeah. yeah. So. One major issue that a lot of RP guys, at least from my generation um, and probably yours, I'm probably not that much younger than you, was adversarial GMs or adversarial players. And these are people right, that would right. either try, just try to push their will onto the other, the other section of the table, if you will, one side or the other of the mm-hmm. GM screen. In this game, that's kind of mitigated a little bit because... You can you can have that because it the actions that you're taking are 
spoken word exposition and uh, reactions, it just elevates the the ludicrousness of the game that you're playing in the first place. And because you're playing on a <laughs> puppet land with you know railroad table scenery and weird un undefinable magic and oddball stuff going on you can achieve some pretty tall heights of ludicrous and not ever really break the game yeah exactly i mean it's a it's a very colorful larger than life setting the characters are pretty outlandish i mean they're puppets there's you've got finger puppets and marionettes and sock puppets and shadow puppets and you know, all kinds of ludicrous things can happen. And, you know, like there's no, there's no advancement. Nobody gets better. There's no skill points. There's no XP. Like the, the stakes of having your puppet get torn apart by nutcrackers, it's not that big of a deal in terms of the traditional, you know, my 15th level monk can't possibly die because I'll, I'll scream at you if you do. Like, like, like the stakes are very different. We really are just trying to spend an hour having fun and making a story together and just kind of seeing what kind of creativity and, and, and crazy ideas we're, we're going to come up with. So it's a, it really kind of sidesteps that whole, um, that whole issue. I think yeah. there are still plenty of fun, fun kind of adversarial things that can come out in a game of puppet land as you, you know, players come up with crazy ideas that kind of screw with the story and the GM's got to roll with it, but it's fine. It's kind of in the spirit of it because Absolutely. it is the series of, these kind of like almost like challenges back and forth to see, you know, who who can come up with the craziest idea. And that's, that's a good time. It can take you to some crazy places. Uh, so we yeah. got, um, we got the third rule, which kind of ties all of this together that we were talking about is that the tale grows in the telling and is being told to someone not present. Uh, so we mentioned that earlier and I, I kind of, I kind of went in order rather than skipping straight to this one, because I wanted to talk about that. What you say is what you say thing. I think that really lays yeah. the basis for you to understand that the tale grows in the telling and being told to someone not present. Given yeah. the increased popularity over the last 20 years of RPGs and tabletop gaming and storytelling and, and all manner of stories from different mediums, I think that this third rule is almost, it, it, we've come to a place where this third rule of puppet land is almost just second nature for a lot of players. And you know, it is interesting the, the degree to which uh, a lot of gaming has become performative. Um, and certainly, you know, there's, there's plenty of this both in tabletop and in video games where they're people are live streaming their game sessions. Sure. They're doing it on Twitch or elsewhere. Um, you know, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole performative aspect to it. And there always has been, but it's always, it was always just for the people at the table, just the players and the GM performing for each other, doing crazy accents, having a good time. Um, but you know, it is, it, it can be really fun to watch these things and to really enjoy these stories. And Absolutely. so, um, that, that the rise of the internet really has changed that. And, you know, Puppet Lamb was a game that was born on the internet, you know, it was published on the web in 95 and it really has lived there ever since to some extent. And um, it's delightful to see uh, that now this idea that, you know, a, the puppet lands intrinsic nature is being very much like this kind of group performance that you're going to do improvisationally um, now could actually be watched by actual people who aren't there indeed, as the rules always said. And they could be watching over the Internet or whatever else. That's just super fun. Yeah, we are. Uh, I'm planning on doing. I have a a new hourglass on the way. Actually, I've been working on the base and the top. Your <laughs> your, uh, your game inspired me to create a custom hourglass specifically for this game. I uh, recently built a studio. That's badass. Where um, where I've been tracking down toys and stuff that I had as a kid, and just it's kind of a monument to my mental and physical youth. And um, 
an hourglass from Puppetland sounds great to be on the shelf somewhere. So I've got an hourglass That's on the awesome. way, and I'm, I'm I've got just enough. I've got enough the right mix of nerd and craftsman in me that I can I can make a pretty nice little uh, stand and, and cage for it. I've been talking to a, a, a ragtag band of goofballs, and uh, we're going to put together a um, audio actual play of Puppetland, and it's a mixture of people who have never played RPGs and old veterans who have played RPGs. Some of whom are just ridiculous people who are, you know, could have their own TV show type of thing. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put together a, an audio actual play of that, and I'll make sure to put the link in the show notes whenever that comes up. The The idea of this third rule, the tale growing in the telling and being told to someone not present, is, as I said, almost second nature to a lot of people because a lot of people just talk like they're in a sitcom. You know, just short of looking at the camera whenever they say something ridiculous, like they're that close. A lot of people get there and a lot of people understand and accept that sensibility. And so this yeah. rule is really not that intrusive of a rule. It's It really comes second nature. If you obey the first two, it almost just falls right into place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and, that, and part of that was, uh, you know, from, from my experience in, in tabletop gaming, uh, you know, growing up and through college and so on, um, you know, so many of our game sessions were, you know, really intense problem solving experiences, yeah, whether absolutely. we're trying to solve a mystery and call it Cthulhu or like a, like some kind of like complicated, you know, battle trap scenario. Dungeon puzzle. And, and that's right. Exactly. And that's, you know, and, and that's like all resource management and healing and whatnot. And that's, and those are great and that's fun. But like those also like, it would just take hours to play through a single, you know, big, big, big set piece or something. Right. And I really, you know, I kind of wanted some, I wanted, I wanted something faster. And this is a time when Public Land came out. Uh, I had been working on um, uh, the original edition of the Feng Shui role-playing game by Robin Laws, uh, which was the Hong Kong action movie role-playing game. Yes, and Feng Shui was one of a, a number of games coming out in the mid-90s that were trying to kind of like like strip away a lot of that baggage from the complicated rule sets and, and an intricate you know combat scenes and so forth. And kind of find ways to have fun with that, with those those things in a, in a much more fluid and cinematic way. Um, so that like th- certainly working on Feng Shui was uh, was you know was happening around that same time period. Uh, and that that notion of you know how can we peel back all the secreted rules and complexities and you know because you remember second edition D and D you know there were all like those different character class books that were coming out and it okay. just seemed like the whole the whole. Thing was just incredibly complicated. That was that was my edition, and uh, I still have a copy. I'm looking at it right now of my homemade DM yeah. miscellany. It is a three inch three ring binder filled with. <laughs> it's got a random monster table, like based on terrain and time of day, in there from every monster. From there we go. It was crazy amount of work to play that game, but I made it sing. It worked yeah. really well, and this. Oh yeah. All of the work for puppet land happens at the table in the moment. Yeah. The adventures, if you, if you're going to like the, the new book has a few, has a few adventures in the back, which are written by some fantastic names, by the way, my goodness, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and they're a page, maybe two. Uh, there's, there's very little beyond that. And it's everything you need to know because everything else happens at the table. Very little. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things I, I wanted to accomplish in this edition of Puppet Land was to um, just kind of make it easier for for game masters to to figure out how to run this successfully. Because I, I understand that there's 
that can be a real challenge for people, especially if they're, if they're used to more rule heavy games, you know, this, this kind of style may be unfamiliar to them. Um, so one thing I did was to kind of, in this edition was to kind of break down, uh, what a puppet land adventure consists of and just make it a very much a clear outline of like, you know, here's the problem, here's the villain, here's the twist, here's this, here's that, and just make it kind of a checklist. And as long as you can just kind of walk through that checklist and answer it, you know, you've got an adventure, you're good to go. Because as you say, everything else happens at the table. Yeah. As I told you, I was um, I was bought in from pretty early on with Puppet Land. So the new book, I was kind of going through it, and there's not a whole lot of changes. Just more. It's just more. It's more explanation. It's more. You got character sheets for all the different types of puppets in here that you can copy and print up. Oh, by the way, something we didn't talk about, which um, I, I really think lends a a big moment, is the puzzle piece concept for your character sheet. <laughs> yeah. This uh this builds tension right on your character sheet. The concept is you've got oh you've got your character sheet which has uh, your name and what the puppet is, can and cannot do. That's your entire character sheet. Brilliant, simple. The last thing on here is a puzzle a square that has kind of cut into a jigsaw puzzle of 16 pieces. Your what you do with that is draw a picture of your puzzle your puppet. Now it could just be a stick figure, it could be uh, a beautiful work of art. It doesn't matter. Don't spend too much time on it, though, because as you play through Tales, things are going to happen to your puppet. Or th- puppet's going to do things that they're going to compromise their own specific guidelines. And when they do that, a piece of their puzzle gets colored in black. And when their last puzzle piece gets colored in, this is their last tale. They are dead. They cannot come back. Now, up until this point, if anything happens to a puppet, if they, they lose an arm to an alligator or something, whatever, once the tale is over, they will wake up in their bed whole again. The only thing that doesn't come back to them is any of the pieces of the puzzle that happen to have been blacked out in that tale. So those stick with them. So they have 16 bad events that can happen throughout the life of a puppet before it's over. Uh, awesome when you've yeah, got one puzzle piece left all i've seen all of a sudden you've got one puzzle piece left and everyone is looking to that person with the one puzzle piece anybody who's played a little bit of puppet land knows that this person this puppet is going to either do something really awesome really terrible or something terrible is going to happen to them and i don't want to stand too close this is what <laughs> happens and it becomes a yet another place for tension to build and yet another a uh, story building moment and stepping stone for a, an amazing experience to happen. Also. Yeah. That, that I, oh, thank you. Yeah. That, that idea was really to kind of, um, you know, because it, because the, the notion was that everything does reset after an hour, like your character's back to normal and you're fine. That's great. Um, there might be some story consequences if you're, if you're running multiple game sessions or something, right. but, but your, your character is back to normal. Um, but I wanted to have something that would that would give your puppet um, and, and and you the player this kind of like longer term sort of existential dread that you're just inexorably marching towards destruction um, and that by by stepping outside of of the rules by like breaking punches laws and getting in trouble and trying to help people that you shouldn't be helping if you if you were gonna you know kowtow to this fascist overlord um, then like the price of that is that you are gradually going to get whittled away. Um, and it will eventually come to come come down to to haunt you. Um, and that that notion is like you know, no matter how many times you wake up in bed safe and sound, 
you're always getting closer to your final death. And so that kind of gives you two timelines. You have like the one hour session, but you also have this longer arc that is your puppets march towards the grave. And I thought thought that'd be just a fun way to kind of, you know, visually represent that um, and give you that additional kind of like, like, you know, knowledge and awareness of your, your eventual mortality. Great stuff. Uh, You touched on something there. Uh, We've been talking about this game itself, but the, the beauty of this game really is in its setting and the, the characters that are built in. Why is Puppet Land a thing? Tell me, uh, you're going to tell the story better than I am. What happened? Why are these puppets in such dire circumstances? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the notion I had about Puppet Land when I was first kind of brainstorming the stuff uh, was, you know, Punch's whole thing is that he he rejects every form of authority that, that attempts to, to, to place itself over him. You know, he rejects the authority of, of his wife, of the police officer, of, you know, of, of like even even like the value of, of life when he throws his baby out the window. Um, he rejects the hangman. He, he, you know, fights against the devil. Like, like Punch is just this classic sort of kind of anti-hero. Um, and, you know, like if, if that's the case, um, then, you know, where does that end? Like where does, where does, where does Punch, you know, draw the line? And of course he doesn't because he's Punch. And that means that, well, that means the punch is going to have to face God, right? Like that's kind of like, that's what kind of came to mind. And so, so the, the genesis of this became that, you know, there's this, there's this guy, the maker who made all the puppets and made the puppet land and so forth and brought the puppets to life because he had magical powers or something. Um, and, and he just wanted like a beautiful, happy place for puppets to live and do puppet shows and so forth. But Punch, by his very nature, is going to rebel against every form of authority. And so, um, and I realized, like, the thing that, that separated the maker from all of his puppets is that the maker could make more puppets. Like, he was, he was, he was the maker, right? So, and puppets, and puppets can't make puppets. So, Punch wanted that power for himself. He craved it. Um, and, and felt like a lesser being because he was not permitted to make, to create life. Um, and so much like, you know, the story of Frankenstein, uh, punch rebels against this. And so he murders the maker, he kills God. Um, and he, uh, divines that, you know, what's up what the difference between the maker and me as a puppet is the maker is made of flesh and I'm made of, of, you know, felt and cloth and wood and so forth. And so not only does he murder God, uh, he then, uh, he then, (laughs) 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 he then cuts off God's face, uh, and, and kind of like staples it, uh, to his own face so that now punch has a face of flesh, uh, on top of his face of, you know, felt and wood and so forth. Um, and then he uses, and then he cuts off more of God's skin and uses it to make his own puppets, which he can bring to life. And so he makes these like, kind of like leathery flesh puppets who are his, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know who, uh, are called his boys. And, uh, and there are these like horrible, horrible kind of supernatural entities that are just manifestations of, of punches, various, you know, emotions and rages and insecurities and, and so forth. Um, and so they can do horrible. They're, they're all, they're all terrible. Each one has a weird, unique magical power. Um, the only that one puppet possesses, and they're they're kind of like his like they're his um that, that's how he makes himself god is he makes the boys and and they do they do his will um and then uh and then because he also needs shock troops uh he also animates a whole ton of nutcrackers so there's like wooden soldier guys 
um, from the maker's collection and brings them into puppet land. And so these wooden nutcrackers go marching around puppet land, stomping with their boots. And uh, when puppets don't behave themselves, the nutcracker will grab them and like crunch their arm and then his jaw or whatever to, to shadow that puppet and, you know, teach it to not misbehave and whatnot. So punch you, takes over puppet land. I'm going to ask yeah. you to stop there for just a second because there are some, uh, Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I wanted to touch on is reading, reading the new edition of the book and even, even the old stuff, your choice of verbiage is so perfect. Um, the, <laughs> the nutcrackers will grab someone and punch and crunch off their arm. Just stuff like that just feels like it fits beautifully in this setting. And things like uh, <laughs> the examples that you'll give um, for, you know, say a puppet who uh, only has one, one, one puzzle piece left to color in. The examples are, you know, you can't say, oh, I'm going to die. It's I don't think I'm going to be in any more stories or I don't feel very good. I think I, when I go to sleep, I may <laughs> just never wake up. Or I really wish I could keep helping my friends and going on adventures, but I think my story is almost over. It's just the verbiage and the language that you use in here illustrate this so much. And it, it will inspire anyone who's ready to buy into this type of game. Just reading the book will inspire you to play. You don't even have to sit at the table. Just reading the stuff. All right, go ahead. So Punch takes over Puppet Lane. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no problem at all. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, he takes over Puppet Land. He's got his soldiers, the Nutcrackers. He's got his boys, who are more or less like his secret police. Um, and, and all he really wants to do is kind of run the place and have everyone acknowledge that he's in charge. Like, that's kind of his whole thing. It's just like, I'm just the boss now. God is dead. I'm the new god, etc. Um, and so and so now the puppets are living in, living in tyranny. Like, they're, they're now ruled by the sadistic overlord and all of his horrible minions. Um, and life is terrible in Puppet Land. You know, it's, it's, it's a horrible place to be. Um, and because uh, night and day only happened because the maker had, you know, like a giant painted canvas roll hanging overhead that had like the morning sun and the blue sky and then the evening and then the night stars as just like one long, you know, canvas mural with rollers at both ends. He would basically crank the day each day to change, you know, from morning to noon to evening to night. And because the maker died at night, there's no one to crank the, the day around anymore. And so now it's always nighttime in puppet land. It's just perpetually night and the puppets all live in fear and they're huddled for warmth and the whole thing. Um, and their only hope uh, is that uh, Judy, who, you know, had had loved Punch and, and was his wife and so forth, but then saw, you know, how terrible he became. Um, when Punch murders the maker... Uh, there's a, a single tear falls from the maker's eye and Judy catches it in a silver thimble. Um, and she believes that somehow someday she's going to find a way to use the maker's last tear to bring him back to life and save puppet land from the tyranny of punch. And so the, the longer story of puppet land that the players get to pursue uh, is basically this, you know, this rebellion story, like, like star Wars where, you know, Judy's in hiding with some other like like-minded puppets, and you're trying to initially trying to like you know help everyday puppets survive their encounters with Punch's troops and so forth, and rescue kidnap victims from his torture dungeon, this kind of thing. But eventually, if if you were to keep playing Puppet Land, you're going to meet up with Judy and and make some more plans and try to overthrow Punch and bring the maker back to life. That's kind of like the long-term goal. If you if you kept on playing it, um, I, I don't, I've never heard of anyone who actually succeeded at doing that, but it's certainly possible. Uh, and and that that is kind of the that's that's meant to be kind of like the big heroic arc that you're playing within. 
So whether you get whether you get there or not, it's kind of up to you, up to the players and the GM. But that's the world that, that this is all happening in. Beautiful. Uh, again, I'm sure you told it way better than I was going to be able to. Um, <laughs> so punch punch snuck out of of puppet land. Uh, eventually got out and killed the maker. Uh, let's go meta here for a second. How long has the maker actually been dead? <laughs> and was he such um, a recluse that know, no one has found his body? Because we're questing to get know, bring the maker back to life. What, <laughs> what happens here? <laughs> he he might be a little gamey by now. Yeah, might yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hard hard to say. You know, I I always kind of imagined uh that this that this was happening um in like somewhere in Eastern Europe in like 1943. Okay. And that the, the puppet and the maker was this elderly, you know, puppeteer guy, um, who has, has been, you know, been a puppeteer his whole life, uh, and made this vast, this vast, you know, tabletop setting and all these puppets and so forth. But as this, this terrible war has been going on, like there's fewer and fewer children left in the village to come see him because, you know, all this horrible stuff is happening. And and he's so horrified by you know what what humanity is doing to itself that he basically just like shuts up his shop and boards up the windows and just wants to be alone with his puppets and that's kind of when punch strikes. Um, but that's sort of how I like to think about it. And so therefore, like no one's noticed the kind of puppeteer is dead because like the world the world is on fire basically. Makes sense. Um, but th- that's how I kind of envision it. But honestly, like it doesn't really matter. It's it's kind of a magical story. You know the puppeteer i don't know maybe he's maybe he's you know leathery or something he's going to hang around a while but um the magic of the tear can bring him back i suppose sounds good uh just i was just thinking like what happens when they start coming to break down the estate and the the makers kids want to want to split up puppet land and all kinds of other weird existential right. garbage uh okay. yeah yeah Mulder and scully and hazmat suits come in right. and knows what happens yeah. absolutely okay so that's puppet land um in a nutshell, the concept, the uh, the concept of playing Puppet Land. Now, in the book, what you what you're getting is a massive set piece and an explanation of how to create set pieces in game, how to create puppets, character sheets. Uh, there are actually very few changes from the old edition. I did notice a couple little ones. I noticed that you changed uh, Stealth, one of uh, puppet, one of uh, Punch's boys. His name is now Silence. I think that's a good move. Right. <laughs> Think it's a little creepier. <laughs> Think it's a good move. You've added one of the major changes that I noticed here was some of the set pieces that you've added just in the book. Like you've added yeah. the devil, the down below, which is essentially puppet hell, which is super creepy. <laughs> um, you you've also added uh, Bedlam Circus, which has some creepy clown puppets in there that that are also creepy and and several other places. I mean the the original setting was what? It was the the lake of uh the lake of milk and cookies, Puppet Town, yeah. um respite and uh the the surrounding areas, but you've added several new yeah. spots in here. The description of uh the sky itself where if you travel far enough in any direction you will eventually hit where the sky meets the ground. Because it's just a big, right. a big mural type of thing. So the concept yeah. of like puppets walking up to touch the sky and and do weird stuff. That's there's there's so much in here 
that will inspire anyone who is who was oh the last thing that was in there was the candy cave which was this weird mythical place because yeah. puppets don't eat real food obviously they can't eat they just kind of chomp on things and candy is one of the things that they like to chomp on that's kind of what they have for food mm-hmm. and uh the candy cave is this um eternal um, go ahead explain it you're gonna do it better than me obviously uh, well, it's just this magical place where, you know, there's endless amounts of candy, basically, which, you know, and, and the puppets, you know, as much as they can't eat, they they still crave things. Um, and to them, pretending to eat something is just as satisfying as really eating it because they're, they're all just, they're, everything's pretend anyway. Um, but they particularly love sweets. Like puppets love like cakes and candies and so forth. Like they just crave that stuff the way the way the kids do, you know, it's kind of they're, they're very childish. Um, and so the candy cave is like this promised place that's so magical and amazing. They, they're, they're dying to go there. And there's also the new, uh, there's a graveyard as well, which I added this time around. Yeah, because, also super you know, creepy. why not, why not have a place where you bury puppets? <laughs> but that's not it. That's not yeah. the end though. You've got one character in there. Um, what was, what did we call him? Um, the sextant. You've got one character in yeah. there who exists only to bury puppets and tend to the graveyard. He never leaves. He never wants to leave. He's kind of an amateur poet. You can hear him muttering to himself. He builds coffins for these puppet remains, but nobody ever brings the puppets to the graveyard to be buried. They just kind of appear there. Once they once their last puzzle piece is is uh, colored in, they just kind of appear there. Now they could be they could be a wad of stuffing and an eye button and that's all that you have left. Or it could be an entire puppet body who has just t- t- turned its back on its principles, whatever. And the 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 sextant doesn't doesn't ask questions, doesn't concern himself with what this puppet's story was. It seems to be the only puppet in Puppet Town, as you've described it, that doesn't care about story. He just has a job to do. He's kind of right. just robotic. And unnerving in the fact that if puppets aren't dying, he's just sitting there to him in his little workshop building coffins for the, waiting for the next puppet to show up and, and just muttering poetry that no one will ever hear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's kind of like uh, he's kind of like the Comte de Saint-Germain in Unknown Army. Like he's there to turn the lights off when the world ends. Yeah. You know, he knows that he knows that every puppet one day will die. So he has to he, he ultimately has to build a coffin for every single puppet in puppet land. And when he finally finishes and they're all dead, like that'll be that. And then what's he do? He just sits there and mutters <laughs> That's a great question. Himself? I don't know. Does he build yeah, his maybe own so, coffin maybe last? Maybe, I think ideally he would have already dug his own grave, built his own coffin, placed it in the earth, and then just like stands there, dies, and falls in. And then the lid slams shut, and that's that. All right. Well, there you go. You have the end of Puppet Town and Puppet Land as we know <laughs> that's, it. That, that, that's the... That, yeah, that, that's the heat death of the Puppet Land multiverse <laughs> there, universe. Okay, so if you're not ready to play Puppet Land yet, you're probably not going to, as far as my <laughs> listeners are concerned. Uh, now, I'm, gonna, I'm going to appeal to another side. This book itself is beautiful. The art that you've got going, it looks like uh, watercolors and just weird backdrops and just, oh my goodness, the art is perfect. Punch on the cover is such an unsettling spectacle. Not quite as like I seem to remember the the Hogshead publish publishing had an even more like drippy like skin falling off his face version <laughs> like 
absolute yeah. metal version of, of Punch on the cover. But it, it almost didn't quite fit with the puppet show feel. Uh, the new the new cover is perfect. It's it it looks absolutely perfect. It looks like it's made of burlap and cardboard and uh, a weird maniacal almost clown faced punch on the front of it, with some nutcrackers in the background. Yeah, yeah, that was it, that was a really uh, a really happy outcome. Um, the, the cover from the Hogshead edition, uh, was, was originally the cover of the magazine, the British magazine that, that, that appeared in Arcane. Um, and that painting was done by Clint Langley, who's a longtime, uh, comic book artist and so forth in the UK. It's a brilliant, brilliant artist. And I love that painting, but oh. it is, like, it, it is pretty intense. It's very dripping. Uh, it's like and, reminiscent of, like, the later Leprechaun movies almost. Like, just. Right, <laughs> just yeah, just exactly. gory to be gory. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good though. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty intense. Uh, and then after the Hogshead version came out, which is in '99, um, a year or two later, there was a Spanish edition uh, done by uh, my friends at Edge Entertainment in Spain. And um, and their edition they did uh, as a laid out like a storybook, like kind of like a you know a, a landscape orientation for the paper. And and they're the ones who got that cover. Um, they commissioned that cover from a Spanish artist. Uh, it was a brilliant cover. Um, and so that that edition, the Spanish edition, has been gone for you know ten years or more. Um, but for this new version, I wanted to do it like they did it and do it this kind of sideways format, like a storybook, yeah. And get that same artwork. And so we we contacted the artist, got the rights, and I think it's a brilliant piece. I'm, I'm so happy to get to use it. And I'm especially happy just because it, it came out of this foreign edition that I had nothing to do with, the, you know, finding that artist or anything else. It was just this very happy surprise. Um, and now, uh, to me, it is the definitive, the definitive uh, cover for Puppet Land. It's perfect. Uh, so the art inside the book, you, you didn't throw away all the old art. I, I recognize a lot of the pieces that are in here. Yeah. Um, so that was, that yeah. was nice. Yeah, we had some we had some really good stuff uh, from the, the Hogshead edition, um, some really good work. <clears throat> and we also had a bunch of new stuff. And yeah. in particular, um, I got to work with uh, an artist I really love, uh, Samuel Araya, who's a uh, artist in Paraguay. Um, and Sam does his his work is kind of a combination of uh, he does he he does photography of like people, objects, you know, scenery. But then he composites it all together in Photoshop with his own kind of overpainting and so forth to make these kind of digital collage illustrations. Mm. Um, and so he actually he actually built uh, he built a punch puppet he built several puppets like actual physical puppets wow. and then would would photograph them in various poses and then paint over them in Photoshop and kind of build the whole scene out of that. Um, he's a brilliant guy um, who's done tons of great work uh, over the years and uh, and he was I'm I'm very happy to say that uh, I gave him his very first uh, art assignment back on Unlearned Armies you know like 15 18 years ago I guess when you. He sent out his portfolio out of art school. I loved his work. And so he did the cover painting for the second edition of Unknown Armies and did some other work for me as well. And since then, he's gone on to have a great career. He's worked for White Wolf and tons of other companies over the years. And so getting to work with him on Puppet Land was a real treat. And I was very happy to uh, to get involved in the project. And he did he did brilliant work. His big, full-page color pieces in Puppet Land are, are just glorious and yeah, disturbing they're and they're just they're just perfect. They're great. They they look like every puppet show you've ever kind of caught a glimpse of but somebody's in the process of turning down the lights and like it's they're breaking they're breaking the puppet show down to build the haunted house behind it and they haven't <laughs> quite, haven't quite got the puppets out of the screen yet. 
Yeah, um, that's that's about right. That's a good way to say it. So, and then I actually I also I want to mention also um, one of my very favorite artists uh, for for many years is in there as well, uh, Heather Hudson, um, who I I knew way back when when I was at Wizard of the Coast. She did she did uh, artwork for Magic the Gathering and uh, and for me at Pagan Publishing and tons of other places over the years. She's a brilliant illustrator, um, and for this project. Um, one thing I really wanted to accomplish with this edition of Puppet Land uh, was to was to make an actual uh, storybook, like a children's picture book, that would tell the story of, of Punch and Judy and the Maker and so forth. And that was that was one of the Kickstarter stretch goals, and we got it. And so I was able to write this little 16-page storybook to begin the whole project with. Um, and Heather did the illustrations for the storybook, and and they're they're beautiful, they're perfect. You know, they capture that that sense of this kind of like a children's it's a, it's a children's story that's kind of gone a little bit off the path and yeah it's, it's, disturbing it's actually so quite disturbing I'm... for sure I was, <laughs> yeah. it was the first thing i read i handed it to a friend of mine i was like here just read the first first few pages of this and he was like oh my lord <laughs> it's like yeah that's, that's how it goes this is welcome to puppet land <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm really happy with Heather's work on the project, and that it all came together beautifully. Pardon my, pardon my tickle in my throat. So it's winter. I've been wrestling with it a little bit. Okay, uh, so the last showpiece here for me is in the back of the book. You got 79 pages of system stuff and game stuff, and the the rest of it, the rest of the 160 pages, are individual little uh, tales that were written by. Some serious names. Obviously, you got yourself in there, but then we have Fred Hicks, a uh, friend of the show, Ross Payton. We've had him on the show. We've I've I've spent a bit of time with Ross Payton. Uh, one of my personal favorites, Jason Morningstar of Fiasco and Shabahiri Roach and such fame. James Wallace. It's a Las Vegas, right? And then uh, yep. you've got Kenneth Height, who does a weird puppet show version of The King in Yellow in there. This is worth buying the book for just to read it. Yeah, they, I, I don't even. I'm done explaining that one. It's done. You've got <laughs> Matt Forbeck. You've got so many great names. There's a couple names in here I don't know. Arnold Castle. I don't recognize the name. Aaron Dembo obviously is is in there. She's got a lot got a lot going on in the back of the book. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a really fun part of the the Kickstarter. Uh, you know, of course, Kickstarters often have stretch goals, right. and and one that we set was to. Um, to raise more money so we could commission uh, additional uh, adventures or puppet land um, from all kinds of people, you know, like old colleagues of mine from gaming, people that have worked with uh, with Shane Ivey at Arc Dream over the years, um, people that just love puppet land and wanted to contribute. Um, and so we, we, were, we were able to assemble um, a bunch of really great work by a lot of great people. And I was, I was just thrilled. I how mean, it, it's, it just feels like... Uh, how did it feel to have... Um have all of these people baby babysitting your child here like uh <laughs> well it you? feels great yeah it feels great i mean you know like there's there's totally like there are there's a there's puppet land adventures in there that are just like straight up you know canonical the way i would have done them like exactly how i imagine and there's some in there that are just like batshit like i don't even know <laughs> what this is about this is crazy and I'm, and I'm very happy about that because I mean, like any RPG, you know, like, uh, is, is, is a very much a, uh, a long distance collaboration between the, the, the creators of the, of the book or whatever, the game and the people that play it. Um, because the way it plays at the table is really going to vary from group to group from player and GM to player and GM. Um, and so, 
you know, getting to see this diversity of adventures by different people was kind of like getting to see a whole bunch of, you know, actual play uh, recordings or something because oh, they were, yeah. they're all very different. And it's, and it's really delightful to me to get to see the diversity that people bring to it when they apply their creativity to puppet land. So I'm, I'm just thrilled by it. It's really fun. There are a lot of great people in there doing great work uh, and I'm super thrilled with the results. Well, I can tell you from, from my perspective, congratulations on a great job. This is a fantastic reproduction of the book. Really brings a big piece of my adolescence. As I told you at the beginning, it really changed the way I looked at tabletop uh, role-playing. And um, congratulations. It's a fantastic work, and I'm so happy to be able to uh, to try to help get the word out on it there. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so we've talked about Puppetland, and we've kind of swam around in the pool of your old projects that have become new projects. So what have you, what have you been doing lately other than puppet land? What else have we got going on? Well, you know, uh, I mean, puppet land obviously was one of my, uh, very early projects in tabletop gaming. Uh, two of my other, you know, um, kind of old school favorites are both also coming back, uh, currently, um, Delta green, which I created at pagan publishing, uh, has come back in a brand new edition as a standalone role-playing game with its own rule system, its own, you know, mythos and so forth. And the first couple books from that project, um, have just came out last, uh, last fall. And that's continuing with more books to come in the next few months. Um, and that was, that led effort was largely led by, uh, my, my co-creators in Delta green, uh, Dennis Detwater, Adam Scott Glancy, as well as Shane Ivy at Arc Dream. And so they, they've done a, those guys have done a great job. I've stayed very hands off um, for that project. Like I, I see the outlines, the drafts, and so forth. But but it's really their baby these days, and, and I love what they're doing with it. Well, those are. And I'm good, so happy with how that how that came out. Good, capable hands for mythos stuff, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, no, the, they've done a great job. I, I love how it turned out. What's the elevator pitch for Delta Green? Just put it out there for anybody. Oh, sure. Yeah. So Delta Green is very much uh, the H.P. Lovecraft's vision of the Cthulhu mythos and and this kind of existential cosmic dread, but moved from the Lovecraftian time period of 1920s, 1930s to the present day and filtered through our current preoccupations uh, of, um, you know, cons- government conspiracies and UFO mythology and, you know, men in black and aliens and all this kind of stuff. You know, where, where Lovecraft was taking his vision and filtering it through um, what he was looking at, which is more like uh, New England folklore and traditions and kind of reinterpreting them in new lights. In Delta Green, we've always taken a look at, you know, all the crazy stuff people believe about the U.S. government and about aliens and monsters and, and black magic. And we've looked at all that stuff, those, those contemporary obsessions people have with the end of the world and whatnot. And we have, you know, refiltered Lovecraft's vision through that material instead. Um, and so there's a lot of government conspiracy stuff. Delta Green is this conspiracy in the government of, of government agents who are, you know, secretly subverting the system to try to fight monsters and keep the mythos at bay um, and save the, save the world for another day. Um, and so it's very much this kind of desperate battle against what is ultimately an unstoppable cosmic evil that can never be destroyed. Um, but they will uh, rage against the dying of the light for as long as they can. And that's, that's kind of the story of Delta Green. It's this, this you know, heroism against in, in desperate circumstances. Perfect. And it began as a, originally as a Call of Cthulhu project. Um, it was in my, my magazine, The Unspeakable Oath. I did a pagan publishing for years for Call of Cthulhu. And then became its own source book and adventures and so forth. And so now um, uh, we brought it back as a standalone role-playing game with its own rule set. 
um, and its own kind of approach to, to, to Lovecraft's work. Um, and it's, and it's, uh, it's off and running. It's going great. I haven't, and uh, then my other, I haven't been able to play Delta green, but, uh, RPPR has some fantastic, uh, actual plays. If anybody's interested in listening to that stuff, I'll put some links in the yeah. show notes of, uh, both of Delta green, pretty much everything you're about to talk about. I think, uh, RPPR has got yeah. actual <laughs> plays of all this stuff. All right, go ahead. What's next? That's awesome. Well, the other one, of course, is um, uh, kind of completing my my old uh, my old tabletop trifecta is uh, Unknown Armies, um, which I created for um, for Atlas Games back in the day with Greg Stolte um, and and the cast of, of many excellent uh, uh, designers and freelancers, including Ken Height and Mike Merles and other people who have done a lot of great work over the years. And Unknown Armies uh, was this um, kind of came out of to some degree as, as I kind of was burning out on the Cthulhu stuff and was looking for, um, how to do something more contemporary, um, and kind of try to, try to get back to try to like redo what Lovecraft did without any of his characters or monsters or mythos or whatever, but just kind of take that creative spark of, you know, what if you could just look at the world, the universe in a different way and, and kind of reinterpret our reality from a, from a very different perspective. And so I tried to apply that kind of discipline, that concept to, um, to the modern day world of the supernatural. Um, and so ended up with unknown armies, which is this very, um, kind of, you know, urban magic, uh, sort of dark fantasy world of, of in, in the, in the modern day. Um, it's all about this kind of underground occultist, uh, cabals and cults and weirdos, um, who can do magic, um, but the the way magic works on an army is, is that um, you have to be obsessed and and even kind of like self destructive uh, to work to com- to actually perform any kind of magic. And so, um, really, only like the, the most marginalized, weirdest people can do it. And they're not very practical. They're not, they don't they're not they're not organized. They don't have they don't keep like timetables. Like they're just kind of like they, they might as well be homeless people. Like they're just kind of crazy. Right. And so it's it's about it's about the subculture of like crazy obsessed people who are trying to change the world magically and keep their secrets and complete their agendas. And so it's very, you know, this kind of underworld uh, activity. Um, and we did two editions of Unknown Armies uh, for Atlas Games, um, and then it was it was more or less gone for many years. Um, and then we did a Kickstarter a while back that uh, Greg Stolte led up with Atlas. And they have, they're bringing Unknown Armies back in an amazing new, uh, three volume edition of the role playing game. And they really have, much of the Delta Green, um, Greg has really re envisioned Unknown Armies, uh, in a, in a, to kind of bring it up to date. It's now, you know, 15, 16 years old. Not just in terms of the game mechanics, but in terms of the setting, the characters, what it's about, the feel of it. Um, and the three volume, uh, initial, um, set. Is going to be coming out later this year, and I've, I've been seeing the PDFs of it. It looks gorgeous. Super it's a beautiful cool. set. It's an awesome game, and I, I can't wait for it to come out. And so, honestly, like I'm, you know, I'm really thrilled that uh, within basically one 12 month period, we're going to have you know brand new, really radically rethought versions of Delta Green, Puppet Land, the Unknown Armies all back on the market. It's 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 really delightful to get to see that. Puppetland is the one that I put the most of my personal time and effort into uh, bringing back this new edition for, and so it makes me happy and thrilled that um, the Delta Green Unknown Armies 
had enough vitality that other people could just pick that up and run with it and do great work with it. And I'm super impressed what they've done. I can't wait for um, an army is here to come out in a few months and see the uh, actual books myself. Good. I will definitely be checking that out. So all, so we've got uh, all of your old projects coming back to life, which is fantastic. You do great work, but you're also doing, you're, you're, you're kind of jumping mediums a little bit. What else have you got going on there? Yeah, well, I spent uh, quite a few years working in uh, in video games. Uh, I worked on a, um, a MMO for the PC years ago, and then I went into Xbox and did stuff for Microsoft for a few years. Um, and then for the last year, uh, I've been working at a uh, video game startup uh, in Seattle called HollowSpark. And um, we've got a couple things in the works. There's a uh, kind of a, a PC uh cooperative shooter called Earthfall, it's like a four-player versus the aliens kind of cooperative uh, action shooter. Um, but my projects here are uh, doing virtual reality. Um, so uh, I shipped our first uh, VR project um, a few months ago last fall. It's called the Impossible Travel Agency. And it's very it's, it's not a game. It's very much um, kind of like a short film or a story in virtual reality um, that we created, kind of inspired by um, the movie Fantasia. So it's uh, okay. like a six-minute kind of otherworldly narrative set to music um, where you're kind of on this alien world on a mountaintop, and you're going to see all this kind of otherworldly alien life, and you're going to see this kind of magical thing happen. And it's, a, it's a beautiful project. It's very much kind of about putting you into this place you couldn't possibly visit in real life um, and, get, and get to getting to see something really beautiful and magical that's kind of set to music and whatnot. So that was kind of our, our first little project to do, just to kind of learn about VR and have fun with it. Um, and we're now working on our second, second and third projects for virtual reality that are uh, one of which is very much uh, a much longer kind of a story project. And the other one is kind of a straight up uh, video game. And so I'm doing, that's what I'm doing these days. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, designing and producing virtual reality projects. And that's, that's been really fun. Uh, it's fun to learn a new, you know, kind of a new medium, new technology. There's tons of challenges. There's a lot of drawbacks to, to where it is, but it's still pretty amazing when it works great. Um, and so I'm having a lot of fun learning about virtual reality and trying to make uh, make fun stuff for it. So that's that's what I'm up to these days. Very neat. So is there anything that um, I can plug or link to for the video game startup? Is there anything out there yet? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll email you after this call uh, with a link to our website and so forth. Yeah, Perfect. yeah. Our first project, uh, the Impossible Travel Agency, is available on uh, Steam uh, and on the Oculus Rift Store. So it works on on the two main or the two first uh, kind of big virtual reality headsets, the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive. Um, our projects uh, work on both of those. All right. Okay. So. Mr. Tynes, tell my listeners how to get a hold of you or how to reach you or see your work. Any any contact information that you would like to put out there, put it out there. I'll put, make sure to put links in the show notes and make sure that everybody has access to your wonderful work. Uh, yeah, you bet. So um, uh, I, I got to say, I actually quit using uh, social media a couple of years ago uh, just to try to get my sanity back. Um, and I, I, uh, I really enjoyed not... I really enjoyed that, and it's I've been able to stay away from it. So, um, so I have a website uh, which is kind of old school these days, uh, JohnTimes.com, which I've been which I've had in one form or another for uh, twenty one years now, I guess. Nice. Um, so, JohnTimes.com has got um, it's got my um, all my credits, links to my you know books and so forth over the years. Uh, I've got a blog there that's very sporadic, uh, which you can subscribe to. 
that, that's the best place to go to check what's going on. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that's, that's very much kind of the, the extent of my online stuff these days. Uh, I, I found with Facebook and Twitter, I just got so tied up in it all the time. Yeah. And it was really, uh, it, was, it was just distracting. It was just taking way too much of my brain all the time. And so I just decided to, to quit cold turkey. And, uh, and I, I have not regretted that so far. Okay. Yeah, I can. I can get that's been okay. That. Yeah, so that's that's the website is uh, johntimes.com. Check it out there. You'll find all the stuff. Uh, you'll, you'll actually you'll even find if you if you dig far enough, <laughs> you'll find the original version of uh, Puppet Land on there. Neat. Uh, from way I back would when. definitely link to that. Okay. Yeah, you bet. The final segment of my show is I tell all of my listeners to support the hobby, support the industry, and support your local game store. And then I ask my victim or uh, interviewee if he or she would then like to support something that is not necessarily their own work, just something they'd like to get the word out on. It can be anything that you'd like to support. Yeah, boy. Um, you know, I, I would, uh, I think I would actually want to recommend a, uh, a card game that came out uh, a couple years ago okay. um, that your listeners might have uh, might have heard about, might have missed, uh, called The Siblings Trouble. Um, and this is a terrific, uh, it's much like puppet land. It's kind of a, it's a collaborative storytelling game. Okay. Um, and it's kind of inspired by, uh, like, like old, uh, kid adventure stories, like the Goonies. Um, so the siblings troubles about the set of brothers and sisters from the trouble family who were always, you know, sneaking out of their house and going on expeditions to explore, you know, the old junkyard or the forest or some caves or whatever. Like you do. And, uh, and they have, yeah, like you do. And they get into all kinds of trouble. They, they meet up with weird creatures and strange people. They find magical artifacts. They, they, they fight monsters. And it's a, it's a, it's a really fun card game that's very much meant to just kind of give you the framework you need to tell a story you know, kind of one card at a time. Um, and I, I got, the, I backed the Kickstarter a couple of years ago. Um, I got it for my daughter, who's now eight years old. Um, and she loved it. Like she would play it herself just endlessly, just spinning stories out of it. And she pulls us into games whenever she can. But it's, it, it wasn't meant for kids specifically. But it's really for anybody. But it's, it's super fun. Uh, whether you're a kid or an adult or whatever, it's a great game for, just having fun telling stories together uh, and having a good time. So please do check out The Siblings Trouble. All right. I will put that in the show notes for sure. Once again, sir, thank you so much for all you've done and giving me your time today. Uh, we ran a little bit longer than than uh, I had discussed. I hope I didn't put you out. Quite all right. I just uh, can't shut up on Puppet Land. That's, that's all right. I, I'll listen all day long. So with that, this has been the Carpe GM Gamecast interview series. Live sitting here with John Scott Times. Thank you for listening. John, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. The Carpe GM interview series is produced in affiliation with the Carpe GM Gamecast. All copyrights, feed information, and shortcomings are shared by both shows. Find out more at carpegm.net. <laughs>